Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MWARS Future of Work podcast. On today's podcast, we are joined by Baral Rinjarin, General Manager and Vice President for VMware's End User Computing Team, and Nick Bloom, a Professor of Economics at Stanford University. Baroth is General Manager of Virtual Desktop Infrastructure and Desktop as a Service for the End User Computing Group at VMware, and he is also Vice President of the Products and End User Experience Group at VMware. Nick Bloom is a Professor of Economics at Stanford University and Co-Director of the Productivity, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's been researching working from home well before the pandemic, having researched working from home management practices and uncertainty for nearly 20 years. Today, Baroth and Nick will discuss all things hybrid work, such as the benefits and drawbacks and how artificial intelligence will impact the workplace. So let's get started by setting the stage with where we're at today when it comes to hybrid work. There's been a lot of workplace changes happening over the last three years. We've watched organizations shift from fully in-person to fully remote once the pandemic hit. And now as the world is returning to normal, we're starting to see organizations navigate moving into a hybrid work format. So Nick, what trends and challenges are you seeing emerge when it comes to working from home? So I'll tell you where we are. Certainly for any kind of medium or large company, we tend to have a mix of all three types of employees. So if I take to Stanford, for example, my own employer, we have thousands of people that actually come in five days a week. Think of people doing food service, you know, security, cleaning, transport, et cetera. Then all managers and professionals. So, you know, typically college grads, they are mostly on hybrid. Uh, so, you know, we're coming in two, three days a week. And then there's a smaller group that's fully remote. Some of these might be uh, payroll, HR processing, IT support, some coders. I've talked to probably a thousand plus companies. That is very standard and bigger companies, a mix of all three. Smaller firms, a lot of tech startups are fully remote. Other smaller companies is, is a bit of a mix. But certainly if you're a manager, if you're, you know, a professional, in a company, you should expect to be hybrid. In fact, fully in person, five days a week for you know managers and professionals seems to be kind of extinct by 2023. Or if it's there in theory, it's definitely not in practice. I've talked to a few companies where the CEO said everyone's back five days a week. When you go talk to the actual managers, they're like, well, you know, to be honest, no one comes in on Friday. Monday's kind of quiet, uh, but Tuesday to Thursday is busy. Roth, are you noticing anything on your end in terms of challenges or trends emerging at VMware? Certainly at VMware, I think what I can concur with Nick, right, there are different job profiles and based on that, it, it all boils down to what's the most effective working balance. At VMware specifically, though, there isn't a mandate at large, but there certainly there are days in which we see higher volumes of people coming in, especially middle of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But in general, it varies by profile. And again, we are a large enough company that we see a spectrum, as as Nick pointed out as well. I think the analogy for practices in the kind of debate might be connecting up to ice cream. So, you know, with ice cream, there are many flavors, but vanilla is the most common. Apparently, it's about 20% of sales. So with hybrid, the vanilla practice, and probably about literally 20%, is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday, Friday at home. That is definitely not even the, you know, the majority, but that's, even with me starting from scratch, the upside of that is people know which days they're coming in and which days they're at home. They're the advantage of having everyone come in on the same day is you can have meetings, presentations, lunches, training events. The reason when you ask people why they want to come into work, it's, you know, it's not the bagel, it's not the ping pong table or you know to hang out with the managers, basically to see their colleagues and work face to face. So the big debate now, I think, is on mandates. Uh, it was on kind of what I call coordination versus choice. 
typically I'm seeing coordination winning out. So either at the whole firm level where like Disney has said Monday to Thursday, you're in, Friday you're off, or team by team where each team or division or group has said, look, Tuesday, Wednesday, there are core days. I'd like everyone in. If you like, you can come in any other day. But that's kind of where it's settling down. If there's a most common plan, it would literally be Tuesday to Thursday in the office, Monday, Friday at home. Exactly what we're seeing as well. Do you see any opportunities for organizations who are offering remote work or who want to switch to a hybrid workforce model? Speaking as a technology vendor, talking to multiple companies for the first time, uh, we're dealing with a topic that's at CEO level discussion, right? As Nick pointed out, it's, it's a statement that at least ostensibly there's a statement that's being made. Um, and the good news is that multiple teams are rallying behind this particular problem. I don't think anybody solved it to perfection, but the HR teams are involved, the support teams are involved, IT teams, lines of business, everybody is rallying behind it and it's a CEO level discussion. So that in itself gives that level of gravity, right? And different customers are, from our interactions are looking at it from different vantage points. Some are seeing this as a we have talent expansion. Hey, can I go to tier two cities if location is no longer a factor for certain job profiles? Is this a, a better talent strategy? Is this a statement of culture? HR teams are looking at this. Should we highlight the fact that flexibility and employee choice is an important part of our culture? We did an interesting redesign of our Atlanta office space. So the real estate and workspace teams are getting uh, a pretty good benefit out of this by looking at new ways of setting up workspaces as well, right? And then I also heard a really interesting scenario in a healthcare company or a hospital where they looked at a, a nurse practitioner's schedule for a week and said, this percentage you spend with patients, this is administrative work. You just need to come into work when you spend time with patients. All administrative work can be done wherever you choose to, right? So there is, that was a really interesting observation I saw. And of course, there's a technology discussion in terms of uh, we found that Close to 90% of companies we survey are using a heavy dose of automation and then using this as an opportunity to stimulate those kinds of investments as well. So across the board, this is a broad topic and I'd, I'd love to hear Nick's, Nick's thoughts on this as well. Great. So yeah, I'm very similar to Vara. I would say for professionals and managers, so you should have in mind typically people that have you know a college degree, there's really three options. And one of them I think has just died. So option one that's now dead is five days in the office, week in, week out. And that's dead because people really don't like it. And in fact, it's become dominated by hybrid. So let's think now, compare hybrid. So hybrid, let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday, Friday at home. The research on that shows that the productivity impacts about flat. There's some positives. You know, you can think of if people get to work from home, they have a bit more time, they're less tired, they're more quiet. Maybe some negatives, there's you know, slightly less face-to-face -face time. Net, net's about zero. So why would you go to hybrid? Well, the big upside, as Brad said, is really about recruitment and retention. So the numbers we get are employees value at about the same on average as a 5 to 10% pay increase. In one randomized control trial I was involved in with 1,500 graduate employees, moving to hybrid from fully in-person reduced quit rates by 33%. So hybrid is just clearly beats out fully in the office. So that's, you know, that's one easy win. Then fully remote. Fully remote is kind of a different beast here and has some ups and downsides. So what we see with fully remote is folks struggle a bit to mentor. It seems a bit harder with innovation. It can be a bit harder with building culture. So that can be some of the downsides. The upsides are one, you don't have to pay for office space and two, you can hire globally. So in a sense, fully remote and hybrid are different tools in the toolkit and 
if say you've got a senior executive team or people running teams, I'd say a hybrid makes sense. If on the other hand, you have a specialist that's say doing a lot of work on a computer or maybe doing payroll or data entry or call centers or IT support, that may well, may well make sense to have these folks fully remote. I should end on saying, if you look at fully remote, typically these people are still meeting up maybe once every other month. So, you know, fully, fully, truly remote is actually very rare. So what you tend to see in, you know, think of Airbnb as a big uh, fully remote company. They're still meeting every other month and the same with fully remote roles within companies. Great. And I think something that has been implemented now that folks have more flexibility is employee experience and employees are starting to have more say in when and how they work. So Baroff, curious what opportunities organizations might have to leverage digital employee experience to improve management of remote or hybrid work. I think employee experience at large as a, as a very subjective topic has always been the focus of every um, IT organization or even end user computing teams that we talk to. Right? That's been a soft goal, I should say. But what's happened over the last few years is now with the reality of every home office or every Starbucks location, becoming an extension of your office, it's a new challenge, right? You can't deal with that without a more structured science behind this. And that's what digital employee experience is offering, right? Uh, it is now tracked as a formal market, as a formal science. And what's helping is, is the immense amount of data we can collect and data science on top of that. I mean, bunch of data is just garbage if you can't do much with it, right? So data science is also helping. And what outcomes people are driving with this is that you are now able to create a a higher level of engagement for employees, a highly efficient help desk, and a more agile IT organizations. These three have to come together. The help desk, the user, and IT organizations have to almost function like a well-oiled machine for the benefits of digital employee experience to really bear fruit. And even again, going back to the survey we did, we saw more than 50% of the companies we talked to see this digital employee experience or the outcomes from that as a key benefit they want to get through their digitization and automation efforts. Great. Now, how do we feel economic environment changes will affect hybrid and remote work? There's uh, a couple of things packed into that. So one, I get asked a lot, if there is a recession, will this kick back hybrid and remote? I think the simple answer is no. The reason is, if you look at hybrid and remote, they're mainly driven by trying to reduce retention and recruitment, save on costs, save, you know, source talent more cheaply. All of that is as important in a recession as it is in boom times. So yes, it was important in many ways, looking back in 21, 22, that there was a, a booming economy to let work from home stick. But now it's stuck. When I talk to companies, I mean, I'm literally talking to hundreds of managers. You know, it's not in the playbook to use the recession to haul people back. It's, you know, the bottom line I say is why would I upset and frustrate my employees for no gain? You know, I, in a recession, I have to care as much about this as in a boom. I think the two big things to think about in the long run is the fact that work from home is going to look like a Nike swoosh. It's been dropping a little bit. I mean, a fair bit from 2020, 21, 22. It's kind of flatlined now in 23. It's been flat throughout the year. And it's going to start picking up again in the long run. The two big drivers of this are two classic economic drivers. So one is market size effects, linking a bit to what Barrett was saying earlier. There's been a huge improvement in the technology supporting remote, both hybrid and fully remote work. Why? Because the market for this has just exploded. So there are now roughly five times as many Americans and Europeans and Asians working from home on any given day. If you're, you know, VMware, Google, Microsoft, a tech, a startup, whatever it is, you're aware this is an enormous market. 
and your products developing very fast. And we see that the products to support remote work are getting better and, you know, looking 20, you know, five, six years into the future, this is going to be a huge driver. In fact, you can say, look back, you know, I, I'm, I'm 50. I grew up in the 80s. My parents occasionally worked from home. When they were working from home, it was carrying pieces of paper. It was horrible. We then had the personal computer, the internet, you know, video calls, cloud, all of these things that make it better. That progression is going to accelerate. So one thing looking ahead is technology is going to make it a lot easier. The other is what's called cohort effects. So if you think of all the small young firms that have been founded from 2020 onwards, they are founded in a very remote world. Many startups are fully remote. They will probably go hybrid eventually, but these are, you know, tomorrow's and future's medium and larger firms that are much more, you know, in favor of and operating in a, in a more hybrid setup. So both technology and cohort effects means I would guess by 2025, we're going to have higher levels of remote work than now by 2030, dramatically up. And so if I was a manager planning out, I, you know, the, the return to office narrative you read, I think is now by 2023 is dead. I mean, we just don't see it. In fact, it's the reverse. It's, you know, the pickup again of remote work. 100% agree with Nick's assessment, right? Like this is in, in some senses going to underscore the importance of, of hybrid work. If you think about where everyone's focus is in a, a potential recession or where, where we are, profitability, right? Almost the CFO is the king now, right? Like profitability is the focus, whether you're a startup, large company, that's the primary metric. And if you look at all the benefits hybrid work gives, whether it's around talent, real estate, help desk, remote work policies, it drives the bottom line. And so if you're able to deliver the tangible ROI a la profitability, I think it's it's going to be a trend that gets support. And I, I love the the Nike swoosh metaphor. <laughs> and Nick, I'll, I'll probably use that. But I think what people are going to do is be more practical about their digital investments. We found that no matter where, where companies were, fully remote, hybrid, or in the odd case of everybody on site, Everybody is working on digitizing their infrastructure and, and providing a, a great digital environment. What we are going to see is a, a more rationality and a more ROI-driven and a more bottom-line-driven approach, hey, which projects get prioritized. I think overall we'll see, continues to see that investment, but people will just get more measured on that and, and focus on profitability. So that's kind of my viewpoint. Great. And another big topic of discussion around remote work is, especially with, you know, leadership in organizations is how can I make sure that my organization is maintaining productivity if I can't physically see them work? So curious to know what your suggestions are for organizations who want to maintain productivity in a hybrid and remote work environment, you know, and what does the new optimal, like new office model look like? First of all, I, I'll, I'll say something slightly controversial. Right? I would change the term from productivity to engagement. I think employee engagement, in, in my mind, is a, is a better metric than productivity. And I used the example from Japan in the past where the way employees in Japan and manufacturing companies used to strike is by overproducing. They used to become super productive and start overproducing things and create over inventory and, and cost problems. So I think sometimes productivity can be the wrong measure. And I think the way I look at it is, I, I know it's used in the right sense, but I, I feel like employee engagement is the right thing because once an employee is engaged, they'll take care of the right levels of productivity. So I think I'll, I'll start there. But in terms of what can companies do, I think pre-pandemic or pre-2019 or 2020, this notion of collaboration between teams and, and then work environment was kind of implicit. You, you all got into meetings and, and did team lunches and things like that. I think what we are seeing with hybrid work is that we've lost that muscle to some extent. There has to be some explicit pushes. The companies have to create environments 
both work-related and non-work-related so that there is more collaboration between the folks and, and they see face-to-face. The second aspect I think companies can focus on is establishing a good trust equation, mutual trust between the employees and, and the company itself, right? Transparency, fairness, and accountability are all good vehicles and good levers to establish that trust. And the third is is the right kinds of technology investments. We talked about digital employee experience. We've talked about security. The other most basic thing is, is the down collaboration equipment, right? One of the beautiful things about the pandemic is that we all were able to get into a, a meeting like this in Zoom, one click of a button, I'm there. When I'm in the office, there is the, I have to walk to that place and then I have to figure out, hey, is my conference room equipment working? It takes about five to 10 minutes to even figure out, can you hear me, is my video on? So I think just baselining good one-touch collaboration technologies in your office could be a, a significant productivity boost. In my mind, the data is clear, right? There's distinct advantages we have found on in, in enabling remote product, remote work, and there are distinct advantages in face-to-face collaboration. As Nick pointed out, successful organizations are going to blend the two together, not via a mandate or a draconian surveillance policy, but by just creating an environment where, where people voluntarily come into work and they see value in doing so because they can be more productive, they can be more engaged, they can see growth, they can see more learning. That's how I see organizations helping this move. One other thing I, I've heard back, which is the importance of performance management. So I think Barat mentioned this actually earlier, which is pre-pandemic, imagine you're coming in five days a week. Either if you're my manager, you kind of always have the fullback situation of you can just watch what I'm doing. Am I at my desk typing away, you know, keenly looking into my monitor when you walk by, it seems to be Excel or some, you know, Python or Word or whatever, rather than Netflix or the Champions League. So in the office, you have the ability to do what I call management by walking around. And I'm not claiming it's great. It's maybe a four or five out of 10, but it exists. The problem is if you're now managing me when I'm at home on, let's say, Monday and Friday, how do you know that I'm actually working effectively? I mean, there's this old joke of the three great enemies of work from home of the bed, the fridge and the television. And, you know, I may have fallen victim to one or many of them and, you know, I'd be a goofing off. And so the critical thing here is as a manager and as a firm, you have good performance evaluation systems. And so what this would typically look like is every six months, you have something like a 360 review. So I used to work at McKinsey and the way it worked there, for example, is there are multiple dimensions and you were given, you know, a one to five scale. Various people that work with you would put down scores. You'd look at it, you'd put your own feedback, you'd discuss, and you'd come out with something at the end. And it's a slow and somewhat expensive process. What it meant is you get a regular performance evaluation that means you're evaluated on what you achieve. And that's not just useful for managers, it's actually really useful for employees too. So when you survey people, you ask them, why do you like working from home? The number one reason is avoiding the commute. But number two is flexibility. And so, for example, either if you're managing me and I'm working from home on a day, I may want to go pick my kids up from school or maybe go for a run or maybe go shop or go to the gym. If you say, Nick, look, what I'm going to do is, you know, I want you to be available for these meetings. Otherwise, you manage your time. As long as you achieve your you know, objectives for the day, that's fine. It gives me the flexibility to use that time better. If instead you're saying, hey, Nick, I'm going to evaluate you based on how quickly you respond to emails or Slack messages. You know, it tethers me to the desk. I can't use that flexibility. So 
what I hear is from both employees and managers having a proper performance evaluation system that's typically every six months that evaluates employees based on output is pretty critical. Even if you're only working from home one day a week, if you're thinking of two, three days a week, it becomes really essential to make this work. All right, let's shift our focus a bit to technology because I think as we talk about the evolution of workplace location requirements, it would be remiss to not also discuss how workplace technology has evolved along with it. So Nick, as someone who's studied remote work for nearly two decades now, I'm sure you've seen how technology has been enabling and has impacted remote work over the years. Can you share how you've seen technology evolve over the years and how remote work looks compared to say like 10 years ago? Oh yeah, I mean, technology is really is everything. Um, so we have data on the levels of remote work going back to 1965. So back in 1965, 0.4% of days in America were worked for, they were work from home. I suspect many of them are probably farmers. You know, I'm not sure that truly should count, but it was very, very low, put it that way. It has doubled every 15 years up to 2019. So even before the pandemic, that is pretty astronomic growth rates. If you're a company and your sales is doubling every 15 years, you're growing very fast. So why was that? It is entirely technology. So if I go back to looking at it, you know, one of four kids, both of my parents worked. They used to work from home a bit in the 80s when I was, you know, growing up. It was shuffling pieces of paper. Uh, it wasn't great. They said it was awful. You know, I talked to them about it. Really not a great experience. I've interviewed people who have done it in the 80s. You have the telephone and that's about it. You get to the 90s, personal computers, Laptops make it easier to have a home computer. 2000s, the internet really comes along, takes off. The other big critical things, I think, are the cloud. So you can collaborate, use cloud software, share files, and video calls like Zoom, which actually operates in the cloud anyway. So I would say by the time we got to about 2015, most of the technology groundwork is laid. Why it took till 2020 to have this big jump is less clear. I think you know businesses were just late to the to the party as Barrett said the reason that work from home is taken off is because it makes firms money it is not a social movement it's about profit growth and it's become very clear you can just be a much more profitable company if you have hybrid professionals and managers because you reduce very expensive turnover and you have fully remote you know for, for some subset of employees pretty much all of this is operating over the cloud using a lot of you know virtual systems using a lot of video technology I would predict it's hard to know what the technology will look back look like five to ten years from now. I know we're going to talk a bit about AI. In terms of some obvious trends, cameras are clearly going to get better. One thing is we'll like to see cameras in multiple places in the screen. So you know we're you know we have a kind of Zoom call while we're recording this, but my camera's at the top of my laptop. So if I'm looking at Barat's face, it looks to him like I'm looking to the side. They're going to have multiple small tiny cameras in the screen, better audio. Um, you know, as Apple's come out, their headsets, virtual reality, augmented reality, all of these things are on the horizon. Mostly they're not there yet. Five to 10 years, they will be. Even for users, if you think about just some lower level stuff, virtual backgrounds, emojis, fuzzing, being able to move windows around, even Zoom teams, et cetera, have got dramatically better in the last two, three years. Imagine, you know, doubling or tripling that, how much better things will be 10 years from now. So technology is really exciting. I think this is where we're going to see enormous advances. All right. Everyone is talking about artificial intelligence right now. How do you think generative AI will impact the workplace? 
certainly I'll, I'll take a first crack at that and it and it's an evolving topic and it's it's a top of the mind topic like i mentioned earlier quite like hybrid work right it, it's probably the most discussed topic you could argue in every industry and and a few reasons right in the in the sense that the pace of innovation we have seen is is it's kind of unparalleled right if you they talked about the the rate at which uh, chat gpt got to the first 100 million users and now that that's just one stat right now if you look at the number of large language models and the level of innovation and we have never seen such groundswell of activity by almost every vendor of every size and every geography right so i i think it's going to have a seminal impact on the workplace in many ways right i think the rate of innovation is going to impact it and also for the first time we're seeing a lot of automation and and immediate technologies the past were focused on the task worker and to some extent blue collared workers right that that was just the immediate focal point for these things for the first time we're seeing also a significant number of use cases for knowledge workers too and and if you look at so the productivity gains by enabling that portion if you look at the gdp typically knowledge workers contribute a, a, at least on an average a higher percentage of the gdp now if you have a, a force multiplier to that workforce it's it's only going to see it on overall growth in our gdp so i think net net and we'll talk more specifics but net net this is going to be a, a profound impact in many ways across different job profiles and job categories within a works workplace i think ai is pretty fascinating as you know brian and i were talking uh before we started the recording that the two big topics i hear all the time and i talk to managing execs is working from home impacts and AI. Uh, this this podcast kind of perfectly brings the two of them together. It's kind of King Kong meets Godzilla in some senses of uh, you know, the impacts on the working world. The, I see this from a work from home angle, so I'll give you my take on that. I think for folks that are hybrid, think managers and professionals, you know, maybe many of the listeners, most of this is going to be a compliment, uh, you know, or make your job easier, make you more productive. I have no fears over, you know, there's sometimes scary things in headlines on newspapers on mass unemployment, et cetera. Yeah, we've seen many technology waves in the future and in fact, employment levels and growth has sailed smoothly through these. So I think it's going to be very, you know, very helpful for us in terms of making our jobs easy. Just think of coding. I noticed even at Stanford, many of my grad students are using uh, AI to improve their ability, chat GPT and stuff to improve their ability to cope. I think the era for fully remote is actually much more interesting. So fully remote jobs potentially are going to be much more impacted. Why? Well, if you look at technology automation, the software is far ahead of the hardware. So if Barat wanted to replicate me, he could probably at this point replicate my voice and maybe even my image remotely and kind of come up with a clone me, particularly with a bit of time. And it may be hard for people to tell. If you wanted to have me standing in front of a room full of students, it's impossible. There's no robot that looks remotely human as these vast clunky things are incredibly heavy. And so what it tells you is, I think as we roll five, 10 years out, we're going to see a lot of low to mid-level fully remote jobs replaced by AI. So I'm thinking of call centers, payroll, HR benefits, um, some basic help desk stuff. You know, I don't think that, you know, these jobs are going to repurpose. The people doing them are going to take on other activities as we've seen over, you know, the decades of history. But for firms, that's where the opportunities are. So, in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine about the call center industry out in India, and she said the employment levels are already dropping now because it's clear that AI can maybe do a better job. I mean, one thing, if you're a customer, 
you don't have to wait. It's instant. There's no, you know, waiting and then there's no crackly line. You know, this on the one hand, you don't get a human. That's correct. But on the other hand, you, you get something that's potentially better in many ways. And certainly as this thing progresses, it will be. So I think that AI is going to be, you know, a, a, it's going to have a huge effect on fully remote uh, in the sense of replacing some of these jobs. In terms of hybrid, I think it's more of a compliment. That's interesting. Yeah. One of the questions I was going to ask is whether or not we think AI will take away jobs or if we think it will help employees be more productive. And it sounds like a little of both based on what you were saying. Is that correct? Yeah. So I want to put on my nerdy professor hat here and say we have data from a couple of hundred years of amazing technologies that have come in. Think of the steam engine, the electric motor, the personal computer, the internet, air conditioning, all the way back to things like barbed wire, the radio. So for example, just to pick on the radio, at the time the radio came into the US, at that point, there was a massive piano industry. Seems hard to think of it now, but Americans, almost every American household had a piano in the household because people would learn to play the piano and that provide entertainment. They'd sit around the piano and sing songs. If you've seen old movies, sometimes it's in it. The radio comes on and completely replaces it. So there are about a million people working, making and repairing pianos in the US. Most of them lost their jobs, but they found other jobs. There's no spike in unemployment. The reason is as much as old technologies go away, new ones come in. And over all these episodes of technological progress, we see it's pretty continuous. It spreads out for every job that's lost and other ones created. So I don't think AI is going to reduce or probably increase employment. It's going to reshuffle it. And in many ways, it's a good thing because it's taking out some of the pretty boring, repetitive jobs and letting humans do slightly higher end tasks. And so I'm very positive on it. It will make us wealthier, more productive. So, yeah, I, I don't really see any serious concerns in the media about, you know, technological unemployment. Maybe if we're running things 30 years out, you know, it's hard to predict. But as Kane said, in the long run, you know, we're not 30 years, but maybe you're looking 50, 60 years out. In the long run, we're either dead or certainly retired. So I don't I, I don't have any concerns on that. I'm, I'm pretty positive on it. I'd say most economists that track technology over, you know, the ages have the similar view. I 100% agree. I think every major technology advancement, as, as Nick pointed out, right, always causes some kind of reshuffling of job profiles and, and people. I think there will be jobs taken away in AI, but like as Nick pointed out, those folks will get retrained uh, and, and go into something else. The folks that are at risk, in my opinion, are the ones that ignore this trend, right? Like if, if you say, like, you know what, AI is a fad, I'm not, I think some level of reskilling, both at an individual level, and as, as a, at an economic or country level is important so that leaders have to see the future and say, hey, this is how the, the job profile is going to look. These are best done by machines and these are best done by humans. Let's prepare for that. Let's train so to that point so that that way you don't cause mass unemployment and, and you don't have a supply demand. There are still several industries with significant labor shortages. And so, so let's we think this will help us fix those gaps, in my opinion. Yes, some jobs will... AI will take over some jobs, but as Nick pointed out, it's not going to cause mass hysteria or mass unemployment as some folks are are predicting. Well, that's certainly good to hear. Baroth, I know that you speak to a lot of VMware customers. How are you seeing customers investing in AI? Where are they starting in their investment? What goals are they setting to implement AI? Yep. Uh, so I think most of them are in their early stages. And if I take even VMware as a customer in our, our own journey, we are in our early stage of the assessment phase, right? And there are typically three buckets, not surprisingly, of where people are looking at. First is their own products or services to market, 
uh, if I'm a healthcare company or I, I know of a biotech company that's thinking about using generative AI to bring faster molecular designs, right? Like, hey, how do I get those products to market sooner? Right? Um, Colgate Pomelo talked about it in, in a recent article. They're looking at that. VMware is looking at that. So first is the product I make. How do I get that? How do I build new products or take products faster to market? The second one is, which is near and dear to my heart and, and more in line with what we offer is, how do I service my internal constituents, especially my employees better with generative AI? A lot of our CIOs that we talk to are interested in, in chatbots and assistance. Yes, those have existed, but now you can turbocharge these because a lot of them want a high dose of self-service. If the employees can get a lot of their answers answered or questions answered on their own and can take care of it, I call it the the Southwest Southwest boarding pass uh, experiment, right? Or now it's a they they were the first airline to make you build your own, uh, print your own boarding pass. It's right? like that that served that served the industry well because uh, the, you're not bottlenecked by the ticket agent printing your boarding pass anymore. So generative AI can help with a lot of employee service. And then the third area that they're looking at is um, process improvements, which is uh, hey whether it's my RFP desk or my pricing and quotes desk or my, we have a big deal management desk where there's a lot of back and forth repetitive questions being coming in and out. We see a lot of value for AI replacing some of that and in some senses even being helping our salespeople more, be more effective. I would say these are three broad use cases that customers are looking into. Great. Let's talk a little bit about hiring. Uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence, do we think AI will help hiring be less biased and include more diverse candidate pools? Or do we think AI might increase that bias because it won't be able to address other factors of candidates that do not fit into the typical maybe profile that you're looking to hire? I think the big question depends on what AI is trained on. So if it's trained on, uh, I mean, it has to be trained on something. So if it's trained on prior data and prior hiring outcomes that include bias or even accidentally it's trained on the internet in which there's biased material, that's going to cause issues. So I think it has the potential to be unbiased, but you clearly just have to make sure it's trained on unbiased material, or if it is trained on biased material, it's you know, after the event uh, corrected. So it's under our control. I just think the main thing is to avoid feeding in a corpus of training data that itself is biased and carries that through to AI. It's a good point. I think if you use the if you use AI just out of the box, the LLM, I think uh, Heather, to your point, there is a risk of bias creeping in, and and we all know these models hallucinate, and there could be some unintended consequences. To so we can fix that in two ways, right? One is as Nick pointed out, if you feed it context, and there are things like vector databases and embeddings. I won't get too technical, but there are ways to give it more additional context, so that it makes more rational decisions and intended decisions. We want to build higher levels of diversity. Uh, and there are also tools like, for instance, when we do hiring, uh, we use a, a tool called Textio, T-E-X-T-I-O, which essentially scans through our job postings and, and adjusts it for diversity and, and to avoid bias, right, and be more inclusive in our language. Those companies, I know for a fact, are already looking at how generative AI can be automatically plugged into those kinds of services so that now... When we are creating a, a job rack, there could be a generative AI assistant that automatically scans this and says like, hey, you may want to change this phraseology because this seems more limiting to your candidate pool, right? So there's already work that's going on with the companies like I talked about to help that. But I, I feel like 
if done rightly, this can actually help us achieve our diversity goals and not the opposite. I think an important thing in there is it's an aid rather than a replacement for. So if you have hiring managers that have AI look through the resumes and provide recommendations, that's very helpful. They don't have to listen to the recommendations. I Where I get worried is that if AI, I mean, this, I don't hear about this, but if AI was running all the hiring, then we're in more trouble, particularly if candidates know that. It's even worse if candidates know that because, you know, they can figure out what's going on and, you know, tweak their resume to put in the words that clearly you're looking for. Great. Last question. Do we think that AI tools can help bridge the employee skills gap? Are you seeing any tools being invested in that might help enable or train employees to be better at their jobs? I know we talked about whether it will take away jobs or might cause shifts, but do you think it might help maybe train employees to be better or help enable employees? Absolutely. A couple of areas I'll pick, right? Sales and, and product development. I mean, if I look at a software company, what the two largest organizations are sales and, and engineering, right? And for both those functions, I would say several companies are building AI-assisted tools that makes the reps more efficient, know more about their customer, and even contextually when they're in the Zoom meeting or oh, there are things that are presented, hey, this customer, based on what, what it hears in the meeting, it can, of course, there's a privacy aspect to it if you if you take care of that, there are value-added tools that aid and assist the sales rep. And then if you look at engineering, again, tons of things. If you look at GitHub Copilot or Amazon Code Whisperer, and, and Google's uh, has a similar code companion tools as well. I think those are all phenomenal. I've talked to customers who are getting significant benefits. Again, the caution there is around the data privacy. A lot of them are concerned about, especially when you talk about code and software, uh, we have made a strict policies on what we can and cannot use for good reason, because when you're talking about intellectual property, uh, you have to be super careful. Yes, these tools add significant uh, productivity benefits or direct benefits, but it has to be done with the, with the right privacy measures in place as well. But net-net, uh, yes, there are tools that are already delivering value in this area. Yes, I think one of the big benefits of AI will be enabling humans to spend more time and develop expertise and things that they're best at. So why don't I give you two examples? So example one would be call centers. So imagine now you have AI in call centers, all the calls that ring up to ask about, can I check my balance? Can I reset my password, et cetera? That stuff can easily be dealt with faster, actually, and more effective with AI. What that then means is the folks working in the call centers get to do the more complicated, more human, more involved problems which is two upsides. One is it's less tedious. You know, you've got to sit there after and you're dealing with, you know, more involved things. And two is you get expertise at it. You actually, the more you can deal with more complicated things, the more you've experienced this before and, you know, think, look, someone else rang up before with a, you know, someone passed away in their family. They've got to do this. They don't have access to their accounts, et cetera. Another example is radiologists. So there's been a lot of discussion about AI is going to help radiologists say, look at scans to address things like, you know, cancers or lesions, et cetera. Again, the more that AI can be kind of a co-pilot, look at the scan, say, look, here's where you should focus at. Here's the things we think are important. The radiologist will spend less time than looking at the scans in detail and can focus in more and spend more of their time, say, talking to patients. And we know that one of the essential things for healthcare is that patients are on board with treatment. So often you see patients go to see physicians, physician tells them to take these drugs or take exercise or do this, and they don't really believe it and they don't follow on. If you instead had extra time with, you know, the radiologist to spend an extra 10 minutes explaining why this is important, they're much more likely to stick to treatment. And so in both cases, I think AI can 
yeah, to undertake the somewhat more routine, predictive, repeatable tasks, freeing up humans to do the higher end things which they're better at. And ultimately the whole process is, is better. All right. That concludes our conversation today. Nick and Barath, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of VMware's Future of Work podcast. For those listening at home, you can dive deeper into the VMware report findings that Barath mentioned today by visiting the link listed in the podcast description. And for more resources on this topic, you can check out the VMware End User Computing blog at blogs.vmware.com EUC. You can also check out Nick on LinkedIn, as well as visiting wfhresearch.com for a monthly newsletter on work from home news. And we'll also put that in the podcast description. And lastly, be sure to check out the latest announcements from VMware's end user computing team at VMware Explore 2023 Las Vegas. Thanks again, Nick and Barath, for your time today.